Our message this morning is entitled Sight to the Blind. And by way of introduction, we just remind you of what we considered last week together. If you were absent and not with us, we spoke to you from the book of Matthew chapter 11 as Jesus interacted with the group of John the Baptist's disciples. In Matthew 11, they come to Jesus as John the Baptist is imprisoned, and John sends them to him, and they ask the question, Art thee, art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And so what they're asking is regarding the position of Jesus as the Christ, art thou the Christ, are you the Messiah? And as we studied last week, the nature of John's question is debated. Some people interpret that as John, for one reason or another, experiencing doubt. Some believe that John the Baptist was doubting as he was in prison, either because he's doubting that Jesus was the Messiah in general, or that he's doubting because he understood Jesus to be a political Messiah, rather than a Messiah who ushers in his own spiritual kingdom. But there are other people who believe that John was sending his disciples to Jesus so that his disciples would follow Jesus. And while that's debated, we drew various points from either one of those perspectives. But what we read in Jesus' reply is the reason that we were considering that passage together. And we'll remind you of that in verse 5 of Matthew 11. Jesus tells them, go show John again those things which you do see and hear. And then he goes on to say, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus lists six miracles that would serve to prove to them or perhaps if John was indeed doubting, to show John again the authenticity of Jesus as the Messiah, his authority, his power, the truthfulness of the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Now, as we pointed out last week, and just to begin our message today, considering this fact again, as Jesus lists those particular types of miracles John, being an Old Testament Jew, would be familiar with passages such as Isaiah 29. It's no coincidence that Jesus mentioned the types of things that he mentioned. In the book of Isaiah 29, we read of these various types of of things, one of them being that the eyes of the blind shall see out of the obscurity in the day of the Lord when the Messiah would come, when the Holy One of Israel should come. That's Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 18, also in the book of Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame man shall leap as an heart, the tongue of the dumb shall sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And as we observe from verse 10, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heaps and shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So when Jesus begins to remind them and remind John, he lists those miracles in that order because they are connected prophetically with the office of the Messiah. 
In other words, they knew that when the Messiah would come, he would open the eyes of the blind, he would open the ears of the deaf, he would cause the lame to, as we read there in Isaiah 35, to leap as a heart, that is to say a deer, uh, those who were paralyzed, those who were injured and unable to walk would be able to leap because of the healing of Jesus. And these miracles went to prove his identity as the Christ. There were many things that were required to be uh, the Christ. He had to be of the offspring of David. He had to be born in Bethlehem. He had to go to Egypt. He had to go to Nazareth. And so many details of his life were spelled out in advance. Proving who he was was a matter of these miracles showing that it was he who would come and bring deliverance to Israel. The blind receive their sight. We want to consider these over the next few weeks one at a time. And today we begin with the blind receive their sight. The first of these miracles that we consider is the recovery of sight from the blind. Now as we consider this together, we begin by saying that Jesus healed many blind people on many occasions. And as he healed the blind... As he gave sight to the blind, some of the people were born blind. Other of the people had gone blind. I'm sure some of you here can can sympathize that maybe you began this life with better vision than you have now. Some people totally lose their eyesight over the course of their lives. I believe Brother Rick recently had a surgery that removed cataracts. He was one point away from losing his license. My grandmother suffers from macular degeneration and has effectively gone blind over the past 15 years. She can no longer drive. She can no longer read. So some of us enter into this world with eyesight, but because of diseases or perhaps injury, we lose our vision. Some of the people that Jesus healed, as we'll see today, were born blind. They never had seen anything in their entire life. When Jesus healed blind people, Sometimes he healed blind people in one way. Sometimes he healed blind people in another way. We know that he healed many blind people. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 30. Great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame and blind, dumb, maimed, and that word dumb means unable to speak, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them insomuch that the multitude wondered When they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Again, keeping in mind that that very order of things, blindness healed, deafness healed, the lame made to stand, those are all things that were prophetic concerning the Messiah. They validated his identity when you read Great is the Mystery of Godliness in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, we read that he was justified in the Spirit. And that word justified there doesn't mean to make him righteous. He was righteous from eternity past through his life to eternity future, but it means to vindicate him. He was vindicated by the things that he did through the power of God. And so these miracles they declared with great power who he was and people glorified God the common people glorified God today we'll consider in specific three particular instances of his giving sight to the blind and draw spiritual applications from these occurrences 
And sometimes as we preach, we might come to a, an example, a story, a, an experience in one's life that it seems easy to draw spiritual applications, but perhaps the, the implications or the spiritual applications are not expressly listed for us in the text. But as we consider our subject today, in two of these examples, it's explicit the spiritual applications that can be drawn from these passages, these experiences of Jesus healing those who are blind. In other words, Jesus does this, number one, for the miracle, and number two, to teach a spiritual lesson through the performance of the miracle. As we consider the subject of blindness today, it's also important to understand that Many times in Scripture, blindness is used to refer to a spiritual condition. What do you mean by that? Well, we know what it means to be physically blind. You simply can't see. Perhaps your vision is dim compared to what it used to be. And Scripture will speak about dimness of vision. Moses, at his death, was 120 years old, and his natural sight had not dimmed at the point of his death. He had all the strength of youth. When he left this world, his sight had not dimmed. As we understand physical blindness, Scripture uses the concept of physical blindness to describe spiritual blindness. In fact, in Jesus' indictment against the Pharisees in the book of Matthew chapter 23, five times he would refer to them as blinded. Five times he would refer to them as blinded. In verse 16, woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, and then he goes on to quote what they would say. Verse 17, ye fools and blind. Verse 19, ye fools and blind. Over and over, five times in this passage, he describes them as blind. Verse 24, ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. By the way, one of the Hallmark attributes of Phariseeism is to make a mountain out of a molehill while ignoring great sin problems in your own life. And this is one of the warning signs that we watch for in our own lives when we excuse the sin in our lives, but we make a big deal out of the small sins in others' lives. They would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. They would strain at a gnat and swallow camel. Verse 26, thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter that the outside of them may be clean also. He had described them in verse 25 as a cup that on the outside is clean, but on the inside is full of disgusting rot, as it were. And so he says that they're blind and they need to worry more about what's on the inside than that which is on the outside. But five times Jesus refers to them as blind. Now, were the Pharisees physically blind? No, they could see with their eyes. They could look around and look at nature and look at Jesus and look at the people and look at the temple and read the Word. But as far as their spiritual condition, they were blinded. They were blinded. And so this often in the Word of God is a metaphor, an analogy for spiritual blindness, for the inability to see and understand and perceive the gospel, the identity of Jesus, the word of God, 
our own sinfulness, the truth of God's word, and as we'll see in just a moment, even those of us that have some sight might be blinded to other things in the gospel or in the word of God. We could be partially blind. We're familiar with Matthew chapter 15 and verse 14. Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind. And this is a famous proverb of Jesus. If the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. How many times have you quoted that in your life? That's a proverb that Jesus gives in Matthew 15, 14. And he has reference here to religious leaders. Some religious leaders are blind and they're blind people leading blind people. And if blind people lead blind people, everybody ends up in the ditch. It's almost comical to think about. You could turn over the wheels of a car to a, or the steering wheel of a car to a blind man and let him drive a bus full of blind people. And you could imagine the trip wouldn't be very long. No telling what he would run into a curb, a house, a tree, another car. Blind people can't lead because they can't see. Now, obviously, Jesus has reference here to spiritual blindness. Back up to chapter 15 and verse 1, and you see those to whom he has reference. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, again, indicting them for their blindness. The first example of Jesus healing blindness that we want to consider today in a greater depth is in the book of Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And this is very common in Jesus' ministry. We read a summary of that sort of thing from Matthew's gospel just a moment ago. When Jesus travels around the countryside, people know him. They've heard of his reputation. And so understanding what Jesus can do, they bring people to Jesus and people are healed. To my knowledge, there is not one single occurrence in the Bible of Jesus being petitioned to heal someone and Jesus refusing to heal that person. Jesus was always willing to heal those that came to him. Now, don't take that to an unbiblical extreme that it's always Jesus' will to heal us of our physical infirmities in this world. It isn't. But when he was personally walking in this world, people that were sick in the presence of Christ were always healed. And I want to use that fact to make a great distinction between the healing of Christ and by extension of him as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles in the book of Acts, when they would go heal people. The people that were healed by Jesus were always healed, and all of the people who came to Jesus for healing were healed. Now, in today's time, the so-called faith healers in the world today, if you come into the room, into these great auditoriums where people pay a great amount of money to enter in and maybe be healed, if you read insider info into those so-called healings, the people that enter into the room in wheelchairs are kept at the very back of the room. They're not allowed up on stage with the so-called faith healer. Why? Because it's a show. It's snake oil. 
They're charlatans. They're fleecing the sheep. They prey on people's hopes for healing and they rob them blind. And the statement is usually made, well, you just need to give a little bit more money. You need to believe a little stronger and you'll get your miracle. Today could be your miracle. Maybe instead of giving me the preacher a hundred, you could give me a thousand. And maybe that would unlock your miracle. I'm going to tell you what, hell is real and hell is going to be hot for some of these people. Because they are preying on God's beloved bride. And Jesus is displeased in that. Jesus didn't push the sick people to the fringes, pretending to heal those who maybe were a little sick, who could get an emotional high from it and deceive all of the people. No, Jesus would go to the those that are dead, those that are paraplegic, quadriplegic, those that are blind, those that everyone knew had been blind since birth, and he would heal them. He never said no. In fact, every single time even a dead person was in the presence of Jesus, the dead person was healed. The dead person was raised again. And Jesus, again, does all of this to validate himself, to prove who he is. They came to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands upon him again and made him to look up. He was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. Now that's a statement that takes clarification that we could spend a lot of time on, but suffice it to say that Jesus would often tell people, don't tell anyone about the miracle that I've done. His fame, especially early in Mark, Mark records this, his fame was so great that it was impossible for him to even leave the home he was staying in at times. The crowds were so great, he couldn't even minister. So he would say, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. It said of Jesus prophetically, and he would confirm this in his life, that a bruised reed he wouldn't break, a smoking flax he wouldn't quench. He was meek. He was lowly. He wasn't a person who sought out to make a reputation for himself or glorify himself in the eyes of men like a rock star would do. You think about the way that a celebrity enters into a town, how they like the pomp and the show. That wasn't how Jesus operated. He would often tell people not to tell what he had done. But notice here that he heals this man, and he does it incrementally. That's interesting. That ought to make us wonder, why is Jesus doing what Jesus is doing? Now, he doesn't heal people from death incrementally, right? Well, this isn't the princess bride where he's only mostly dead, and you need to give him the magic pill, and then he'll become not dead at all. No, he heals him incrementally for a reason. And it should be pointed out that when Jesus healed people, Jesus healed people. We said last week that there's a difference in a providence and there's a difference in a miracle. When Jesus miraculously heals you without any means of medicine, you are healed. Sometimes he heals through providence. The surgery works. The medical procedure works. The chemo works. The radiation works. And that's God's providence. But with a miracle, there's no human intervention at all. God simply acts. And it's amazing. And we marvel at that. And we've seen that. 
How many of you have known someone who have, who's gone to the doctor and there's a tumor, there's a cancer, there's something there. It is visible on the x-ray. And then six weeks later, they go back for a checkup and with no treatment at all, it's gone. That's happened. And we, we say in those occurrences that God has worked a miracle. And we've seen those cases. When Jesus heals, he heals completely. If you're paraplegic, you don't walk with a limp. You stand up and you leap as a heart, as we read from Isaiah. Why would Jesus heal this man incrementally? Now, how many of us would be so grossed out at the thought of this? Let me tell you, he didn't care. He didn't care. Jesus spits in his eyes and the man receives his sight. You might think, I don't, I don't like the sound of that. Friends, if you were blind and there was Jesus, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't care. He spit in his eyes and put his hands upon him and he asked if he could see. And he looked up and he says, I see men as trees walking. And he put his hands upon his eyes and made him to look up and he was restored. And he saw every man clearly. The first time he looks and he sees images of men. They look like trees. This doesn't mean that they look to have leaves and they look to have roots and they had the complexion of bark, but he sees men as columns or as pillars. Obviously, this man had not been blind from his birth because he knew what a tree looked like enough to know that these men appeared as trees. I see men as trees walking. I ought to beg the question, why does Jesus do this differently here than he had so many other times simply healed someone. There's an important reason. Back up to verse 14, Mark 8, verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. They'd been in a boat. They brought one loaf. You've got all of these people. We have no way to eat. The disciples had committed a great blunder. They had forgotten to take food. He charged them saying, as he was aware of that, Jesus charges them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisee and the leaven of Herod. Now, what Jesus does is take a physical example, bread, food, and he uses it to teach something that is spiritual. Physical reality applied in a spiritual way. We forgot bread. Jesus says, well, hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisee. And by the way, leaven in the Bible is many times used to depict sin. In this case, it had reference to their attitude, their teachings, and their sinful disposition. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like Herod. So they hear this and they begin to reason among themselves. Is he saying this because we don't have bread? Now put yourself in their shoes. We forgot bread. Well, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Do we not need to get bread that the Pharisees get? What is he talking about? They're confused. When Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye because ye have not bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart hardened? Have you eyes, see ye not? Or having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? Do ye not remember? talks about breaking the bread and feeding thousands with just a few fragments. Don't you think I can feed you with one loaf? And then he concludes this. How is it that you do not understand? 
And then immediately, when he arrives at Bethsaida, he finds the blind man. And he heals him incrementally. Why does Jesus heal this man incrementally after what had just taken place? They were partially blind. They were partially blind. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah. They believed he was the Son of God. And yet still at this moment in their walk with him, they're worried because they had one loaf of bread. After they had seen him take loaves and fishes and feed thousands upon thousands of people. What's the application of that? What's our spiritual takeaway? Sometimes we can be partially spiritual, spiritually blind. In a spiritual sense, we can be partially blind. We might look at the Word of God or the great teachings of the gospel and only behold men as trees walking. We might see the shape of things. We might see the blurry image of the things that the gospel would set forth, but we don't see clearly. We might mistake a man for a tree. What's the reasoning in this? What what am I expressing to you? We might miss some of the smaller details of the gospel of Christ, the teachings of God's Word. I would submit to you that with the exception of the Lord Jesus, there has never been a human being who walked this world that had total, complete spiritual sight. We are all blinded to one truth or another in the Word of God. Now, what ought we to do? We ought to say, God, I see men as trees walking. Give me better sight. Lord, you've opened my eyes to the identity of your son. I believe in him. I love him. I believe the word. I love the word. But there are things that I don't understand. Lord, show me thy truth. We ought to pray to God that he gives us eyes that see and ears to hear that we be not like the disciples and understand not. What's our spiritual takeaway from this first example of a man healed from blindness? That we can be partially blinded. We can be partially blinded. Now, a man who's partially blinded can also partially see, right? He's got some sight. There's a lot of things that he doesn't perceive, that he doesn't see. And he ought to pray to God, or she ought to pray to God, to give the sight to see more and more and more. Jesus heals this man in phases to show them that they are still yet partially blinded to his power, to what he can do, In so many places he would say, O ye of little faith. Another account is in the book of Mark chapter 10. Verses 46 through 52. The account of blind Bartimaeus. They came to Jericho and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, a 
great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. Now we should thank God right here and right now for a country such as the one we live in when you are legitimately disabled. And I know there are abusers of this system. But if you're legitimately disabled, we live in a country where we provide for those who cannot provide for themselves. How did a blind man with no family to take care of him survive in Jesus' day? By begging. As a homeless man on the side of the road, starving, skinny, dirty, with tattered clothing, relying on the generosity, many times the begrudged generosity of others to give him an occasional morsel of bread so that he could survive and not die of starvation. I'm thankful that we live in a country where we have programs that help people who cannot take care of themselves. They came to Jericho and this man sat, blind Bartimaeus, When he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out. Now, this man knows some things about Jesus of Nazareth. He begins to cry out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. So much, so much does he know about Jesus of Nazareth that he even knows that Jesus is the son of David. Now, again, we mentioned briefly that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem, was to be of the offspring of David, that he was to go into Egypt, that he was to go up to Nazareth because he was called the branch. And the word Nazareth comes from the root Netzer, which means green tree. Jesus, much of his life was spelled out in advance by way of prophecy. They knew that the Christ would be the son of David. And this blind Bartimaeus, he cries out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. This Bartimaeus knows some things about Jesus. Do you think he had this hope in him, understanding he was of David's offspring and that he was giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf? Do you think he had passages that we read from Isaiah 35 in mind as he cried out unto Jesus? This man has a hope. Many charged him as he screams and he cries, that he should hold his peace. It's embarrassing to them. It's embarrassing. You've got this prophet from out of town, and he's got a great reputation, and everyone knows about him. And we want to put our best face on for the dignitaries, right? When the president comes to town, regardless of which president it is, which are, regardless of which administration it is, you don't show up to meet the president... You don't show up to meet the president wearing cut-off jeans with hair half-combed. Ladies, you wouldn't go up to meet the president without makeup. Your hair matted, sleep in the corners of your eyes. You haven't brushed your teeth. Is that the way you receive a dignitary? No, it isn't. I'll spare you any remarks about the president coming to a certain football game yesterday. We won't even mention that. When a dignitary comes to town, you roll out the red carpet. That's why the phrase roll out the red carpet exists as a figure of speech because it implies what they do for royalty. These people don't want 
the embarrassment of this blind beggar ruining the scene. And so as Jesus approaches, Bartimaeus cries out, and he cries out, and they shush him. Stop it. You're embarrassing us. Let him pass by. Let us stand here and look good as he goes by. What does Bartimaeus do? He cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. They shush him. He gets louder. He gets closer. He gets more obvious. He's probably waving his arms. He's making a scene. And so Jesus sees this. He stood still. He stops. Now he stops to heal this man, but you can also see Jesus setting straight this carnal mindset in shushing the man who needs the help. Why would we shun the man who needs help from Jesus when Jesus is there? So many tangents that you could go on about the way a church is to function, about the way they're to receive people who come to them for help. Don't shun blind Bartimaeus. If a man needs help, if he needs spiritual help, if he's sin sick, if he has a past, why shun him away from Jesus so we can look better as we gather together as a crowd? Can you see some of the spiritual ramifications of this? Jesus stops. He just stops. Wait a minute. He stood still and he commanded him to be called. Bring that man to me. And they call the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. You can imagine the crowds parting. There's a multitude here. Pushes them all away. This man begins to stagger through the crowd. The hush falls upon the crowd. Jesus is standing there looking at him, looking at the crowd. And here this man is thinking, my moment has come. Another point that should be emphasized here is this man cries unto Christ for what? For mercy. Lord, give me mercy. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve your miracle. I don't deserve your blessing. But God, I beg you for mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. That's what mercy is. Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? Now, Jesus knew that. But Jesus often asks questions that the answer is publicly expressed in front of the multitude. What will thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Thy faith has made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Now I overlooked a statement in verse 52. When Jesus heals him, he tells him, Go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. But you know what? This man Bartimaeus, he doesn't go his way, does he? No, he follows Jesus as a disciple. 
He followed Jesus in the way. What's a spiritual takeaway as we're looking at these, these experiences, these stories of Jesus healing those that are blind? Spiritual takeaway is that victory takes persevering in prayer despite discouragement. You could use this in a spiritual way as, a, as an analogy for our own lives. How many times do the wicked of this world or the devil's angels themselves speak into your ear, the accuser of the brethren, don't bother praying, he doesn't want to hear you. Don't cast your cares upon him, he doesn't care for you. Does Satan shush you when you pray to God? This man received this not on the first time he asked, but when he persistently cried out all the more to Christ, and Christ heard him, and Christ healed him, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. The concept of persevering in prayer, of enduring despite discouragements, is so many times in Scripture connected with sufferings. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, as we read about the armor of God, You'll notice that the passage in the armor of God that speaks about prayer also speaks about perseverance. We pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We're still talking about praying. As a soldier of the cross, armed and prepared for battle, one of our duties to endure in prayer, to persevere in prayer. That's actually the only occurrence of the word perseverance in the Word of God, that we endure in prayer as we engage in this warfare, having done all to stand. In the book of James, chapter 5, James speaks about suffering. He speaks about afflictions. He speaks about temptations. Beginning in verse 10, Take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. What do you need to do if you're suffering affliction? Well, notice what James continues to write. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. You teenagers, that Y-E-A is yea, not yeah. Let your yeah be yeah. You know, yea be yea and your nay be nay. Lest you fall into condemnation. Is there any among you afflicted? What are we talking about? Patience, enduring in afflictions. Is there any among you afflicted? Let him what? Let him pray. Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Verse 14, is any sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him in, or with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Confessing our faults, we read in verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the example he gives is of Elias, Elijah, a man of like passions, a man who suffered much in his life. What's the moral of the story? 
with this blind Bartimaeus? What's our spiritual takeaway? We must wrestle in prayer. Remember when Jacob wrestled with the angel and he said, I'm not going to turn you loose until you bless me. And he blessed him. Oh yeah, but he also touched the hollow of his thigh and Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. But when the psalmist refers to that event, he speaks about how he cried out with supplications unto God. He was praying the entire time. I'm not going to turn you loose until you hear and until you bless. That is exactly the mentality of blind Bartimaeus. I'm not turning loose. And so we, we persevere, we endure, we wrestle in prayer, begging God for that which we stand in need of. And it's in those moments that God so many times does hear us and grant that which we stand in need of, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We have not because we ask not. And so to have, we must ask and continue in asking despite discouragements like blind Bartimaeus. God, I'll cry out the louder. I'll make a commotion and I will beg you for that which I stand in need of. And lastly, the final example of Jesus healing a blind man, and this is a lengthy one that we're going to have to do a lot of summarizing with, is the man born blind in John chapter 9. John 9, 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. A man that was blind from his birth. Now the disciples see this and they begin to question the cause of this man's blindness. The disciples asked him, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now they know that he's blind from birth. Begs the question, how would someone sin in the womb to be born blind? Now, please understand, we're shaped in iniquity, conceived in sin. We're sinners from the moment of conception. We come forth from the womb speaking lies. But how could a baby violate God's law to such a great degree that he would be born blind? Can you see a fallacy in their thinking? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Maybe his parents committed some grievous sin before he was conceived or before he was born. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now this introduces the concept of suffering to us, and the, more specifically the cause of suffering to us, the various causes of suffering. Sometimes we are as Job's miserable comforters and we believe that every time something bad happens in the world is because God is judging. That's what Job's comforters said. Job, you're harboring some secret sin. Somehow, some way, you have offended God and because you've offended God, all these afflictions have come upon you and through the entire thing, Job said, No, I have not sinned. I have not sinned. I have not brought this on me through chastening. It's not always the cause of suffering. In fact, there are many causes of suffering in the world. Let's think about this just briefly. First of all, 
There are sufferings that we experience that are simply common to man because we live in a sin-cursed earth. 1 Corinthians talks about that. There are diseases and illnesses that we experience just because we're tainted by sin. God created a perfect paradise with no sin, with no affliction, with no suffering. When Adam sinned and transgressed the law of God, what did God say? Because of your transgression, the earth is cursed for your sake. Cursed. And so because of that, thorns and thistles it brings forth. Because of that, we have diseases and illnesses. Because of that, what did he say? In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Or an alternate translation of that is dying thou shalt die. Sickness and death is simply a result of sin in general, the original sin. And so there is suffering that is common to all of us. And I might point out that We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if the wages of sin are death, every breath we take, despite discomfort, is a mercy. Every breath we take is a blessing of God and is more than we deserve. Sometimes suffering is because of persecution. Because that wicked one hates you and he afflicts you. And sometimes his... Minions afflict you. I have to stop using that word because of that movie. I mentioned in a message a couple of years ago, the devil's minions, and somebody asked, are you talking about those little yellow things? No. Sometimes we suffer self-inflicted wounds. If I smoke cigarettes, a pack a day... Two packs a day from the time that I'm 15 until the time that I'm 60. I shouldn't be surprised if I get lung cancer, should I? No, that's pretty much reaping what you sow. I lost my grandmother at 62 in 2000 to lung cancer. She was a smoker her entire life. Suddenly what looked cool to us at the time didn't look so cool anymore. We might suffer chastening where God chastens us because he loves us as sons. And when we do something wrong, he afflicts us either in our conscience, in our mind. Sometimes physical afflictions are the chastening of God. The causes of suffering in this world are very diverse and we need to understand that. But this man's suffering was in a very special bracket, if you will. This man had suffered blindness for the glory of God. And we are remiss if we leave that out of our theology and our teaching. There are men in the Word of God who suffered that God would be glorified through His dealings with them in their suffering. Can you think of examples? Job? Joseph? How about Lazarus? In fact, when Lazarus lay there dying, they come to Jesus, and Jesus tarried long enough for Lazarus to die of the illness that he had. And he said that this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that they might believe. How do you know that a suffering is for the glory of God? Well, does God glorify himself in it? How did he glorify himself for Lazarus? He raised him from the dead. And he showed them his power to raise the dead. 
God was glorified in that. This man did not sin, neither did his parents sin that caused his blindness. But this man was blind that the works of God should be made manifest in him. God had suffered this to come upon him so that God could intervene, interject himself, overrule that affliction and demonstrate his power to his glory and the strengthening of the faith of his children. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Jesus is saying it is imperative for me to do miracles such as this as I am engaging in my public ministry. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground. He made clay of the spittle. He anointed his eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and he washed and he came seeing. That's the miracle. Why does Jesus do this? To show his power and to glorify his father to the glory of God. This healing causes quite a commotion. Why does this healing cause quite a commotion? Well, number one, this man was born blind and everyone knew him. Could you imagine the commotion? They don't have TV. So they're not all huddled in their living room around a glowing box. They don't have Facebook. They don't have Twitter. They don't have Instagram. So they're not sitting there in their home looking and scrolling through a screen. When this happens, everybody knows about it. They begin to noise it abroad. The neighbors came. They that were before him that had seen that he was blind and they said, Is this he that sat and begged? This is the part of the narrative that we call the commotion. Some said, This is him. Other people said, no, he just looks like him. So they begin to debate and argue and reason. Now, why this is so controversial, not only because this man was born blind, but because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. Now, Jesus would say this in his ministry. The Sabbath was not made for God. The Sabbath was made for man. Jesus is Lord on the Sabbath like he is the other days of the week. Do you think God ceases to uphold the universe by the word of his power on the Sabbath day? No. He can work whenever he pleases. Jesus quickens his children on the Sabbath. Jesus sends rain on the Sabbath. Jesus blessed us to get up this morning on the Lord's day, our New Testament Sabbath as it were. God works on the Sabbath and he doesn't need our permission to do anything. He does what he wants when he wants. He is sovereign. Jesus heals this man. They begin debating, who is it? His parents get involved. This is our son. He is healed. The man is involved. How were thine eyes open? He answered, a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and sent me to wash. I washed. I received sight. Where is he? I don't know. Beginning in verse 13 begins the controversy. First you have the healing, then you have the commotion, then you have the controversy. You see, the Pharisees catch wind of this. And because it was on the Sabbath, they begin to question that Jesus is even a man of God. 
And they begin to debate. This man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? While we're all sinners, they use the word sinner here to have reference to someone who absolutely is totally against God. We would use the word reprobate or unregenerate. If this man was a wicked man, how could he do such miracles? And there was a division among them. So they begin to interrogate. First, people around him. Then his parents. Is this your son who you say was born blind? His parents answered, we, we know that this is our son, but we don't know how this happened. Notice verse 22. The parents actually uttered these words in cowardice. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. The Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. In other words, we're going to excommunicate you from the synagogue if you profess Christ. And so the parents are afraid. They say, hey, he's a grown man. Why don't you go ask him? So they bring the man. Now the man is involved. And they begin to question and they conclude, well, this man, he's a sinner, and so you need to give the glory to God. And finally, this man rakes them over the coals. He defends Jesus. He defends the miracles. I told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will you be his disciples? Now he's getting sarcastic. I've already told you how I'm healed. A man named Jesus made clay. He rubbed my eyes. I went and washed, and now I see. I've been blind my entire life. Imagine that. And this is something I want you to remember in your moments of suffering. What if you are suffered to go through something that is displeasing or uncomfortable that God shows you his face greater than he shows to other people? The first face this man was able to see. Think about it. He comes seeing, and who does he see? The face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you trade 20 years of blindness to see Jesus after giving you sight and being a man that is recorded in Scripture? This man begins to ridicule them. Are you going to be his disciple too? You want me to tell you again so you can begin following him? And they reviled him. Thou art his disciple. The man answered, Why herein is it a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened my eyes? Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. This man says, Look, I don't know who he is. I don't know what he is, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see. And there is no way that this man is a sinner. What do the Pharisees do? Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? Who are you to tell us theology? We're the experts. And they cast him out of the synagogue. But as they do that, Jesus goes and he meets him. Here's our 
spiritual takeaway from this example, you have one that sufferings might be to the glory of God from time to time, in which case God shows his face to us in powerful ways in overruling that to his glory. Number two, some men are so self-righteous, so religious in a negative way, that they absolutely will not humble themselves that they could see. Jesus speaking to this man who, Jesus says, does thou believe on the Son of God? And he says, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus says, thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He worships him. Jesus said, this is our takeaway, for judgment I am come into the world that they which see not might see, and they which see might be made blind, in that you have the giving of spiritual sight to the poor, the afflicted, all of Jesus' little children in this world to various degrees, but those that were religious who thought they had sight, that they might be made what? Blind. That they might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words. And they said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. And what that simply means is that your religiosity and your self-righteousness has blind you, or blinded you to the degree that you simply will not consider anything that I have to say. Takeaway, sometimes the hardest person to work with is the one who is so prideful and thinks himself right on everything. A man right in his own eyes. A man right in his own eyes. Our three takeaways from today. Even those with sight can be partially blinded. We must always endure wrestling in prayer as blind Bartimaeus. And we must never think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, lest the hardness of our own hearts blind us.